It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the wisdom, the winter of despair. Those words come from the literary classic, A Tale of Two Cities. And those words could speak to the context of the book that we're studying on Sunday mornings, the book of 1 Samuel. See, in these times that we're studying, these biblical times, it was a time of darkness, a season of darkness, if you will. But we're going to see that God was getting ready to lead His people into a season of light. And instead of a tale of two cities, what we're going to see in our text this morning is a tale of two families. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book, 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 11. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Bible says, Then Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, Samuel's father, went to his home at Ramah. But the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priest with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy, wearing a linen ephod. His mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. It truly is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. Lord, we bow our hearts before you today, and we simply say, speak, for your servants are listening. Lord, we ask you to use your word to mold our lives, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed. God, use this text in the lives of families today for the glory and the fame and the renown of your name. 
Lord, establish my footsteps in your word. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The setting of the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel is the time of the judges. And we see what this time of the judges was all about at the last verse in that book when it says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. The time of the judges was a time of, of complete rebellion and wickedness against the things of God. But in the midst of this wickedness, in the midst of the spiritual darkness, God's getting ready to lead his people to great spiritual light. He's going to raise up a new leader for his people. And that's where we find ourselves. We've seen how God gave a uh, lady who was unable to have children, a son named Samuel. And Hannah gave this son to the service of the Lord, a Nazarite vow. We studied this the past couple of weeks, and she gives him to God to serve him. And God's going to use Samuel in great and mighty ways. But in chapter 2, as we see this story unfold, we begin to see this contrast between the two families, the, the family of Elkanah and Hannah and the family of Eli. And the contrast is striking, and the contrast is shocking. So just walk with me through these notes. I want to show you some, some different contrasts uh, in this story. First of all, we see two different spiritual conditions. Two different spiritual conditions. In Eli's sons, we see a complete lack of reverence for God. Look what the Bible says there in verse uh, 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. That, that phrase, worthless men, literally in the Hebrew language, is sons of Belial, which means sons of the devil. So, these two men who were high priests, they were, their, their father was the great high priest, Eli, but they were serving as priests in the, the temple there in Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Bible says these two men were worthless. They were sons of Belial. Why? Look what it says next. They did not know the Lord. And we're going to see that these men had total disregard, a complete lack of reverence for the one true God. They should have known better. They were priests. And yet they lived in great and utter and total disrespect for God. Now, what kind of sins did we see occurring in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas? First of all, we see a complete lack of reverence for God in that there were ceremonial sins. Ceremonial sins. Look what the Bible says there in verse 12. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priest with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now, the law had stipulations for the, the cuts of meat that were provided for the priest to eat. But they disregarded these stipulations and the portion that was theirs. They would just take a great fork and... and put it in the pot, and whatever came up, they would take to eat for themselves. They were disregarding God's, God's stipulations in the ceremonial law. And that's not all. Look what happens in verse 15. Also, they burned the fat. The priest servant would come and say uh, to the men who were sacrificing, the man that was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. Here's what was happening. People would bring an animal for a, for a burnt offering, and before the offering was ever put on the altar, the priest would come and get the best cuts of meat. In other words, before the Lord got his portion, they got their portion. And even the lay people knew this was wrong. Look what it says there in verse 16. If the man should say to him, 
They must surely burn the fat first, then you have as much as you desire. I mean, they knew better. The priests didn't know better. Look what the priests would do if they were warned by these lay people. They would say, give us uh, what we want or we will take it by force. So totally disregarding the law of God. They tried to get the people to give them the Lord's portion for their own. They wanted the best cuts of meat. They did not want God to get what he called for in the sacrificial system. They wanted what they wanted. So they were ceremonial sins. They were disregarding uh, God's law, God's, God's stipulations for how you did things there uh, before the Ark of the Covenant. But secondly, they had moral sins. Look what the Bible says in verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Not only were these priests disregarding the ceremonial law, they were committing indecent, immoral acts with women there where the temple was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Can you imagine the, the wickedness that was being, was being displayed for the people of Israel? They were living in great moral wickedness. No moral boundaries in their lives. And then third, these sins were all public sins. Look what happens in verse 23. He, Eli, their father, said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. So all of their sin, their ceremonial sin, their moral sin, was on display for everyone to see. It was very public. It was a disgrace to the priesthood, a disgrace to the law, a disgrace to their God. They were wicked, sons of Belial. And so that's the first spiritual condition that we see, a, a shocking absence of shame, hardening their hearts against the things of God. Because look what it says in verse 25. It says, Eli speaking here, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. In other words, they had crossed the line in the heart of God. They had gone too far. So God said, okay, you will be judged for your wickedness. They were beyond the point of repentance. And so they were sons of Belial. That's the first spiritual condition that we see. But, but in contrast we see the spiritual condition of Samuel. And it's meant to be contrasted because this passage will talk about Hophni and Phinehas, and it'll talk about Samuel. Then Hophni and Phinehas, then Samuel. And there's, a, there's an ongoing comparison happening in this chapter. So when we look at Samuel, what do we see? We see growth in, in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. Samuel is growing in the things of God. Look what it says in verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Remember Hannah? Gave her son to serve God at the temple as a Nazarite, totally dedicated to the service of God. So she leaves Samuel there at the temple, and, and she and Elkanah, the other kids, go home. And he's there, and what's he doing? He's serving the Lord. So if you look there in your notes, Samuel is serving God. He's serving God. Look what it says in verse 18. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. He was helping with the priestly duties. He was serving under Eli. He was serving God. And as he serves God, he, he, he's growing in who God is, growing in his knowledge of who God is. Because in the next blank there it says, Samuel is learning about God. Verse 21, it says, The Lord visited Hannah, 
she, can, she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel, watch this, grew before the Lord. Look in verse 26. Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. So what do we see? We see Samuel growing in the nurture and, and admonition of the Lord. He's serving God. He's learning about God. Do you, do you see the contrast there? Hophni and Phinehas, wicked, immoral, total disregard for the things of God. But then we see Samuel growing in the knowledge of the one true God. There could not be a more clear and distinct contrast. Now here's the question. Which one of these do you want for your kids? Which one of these do you want for your grandkids? Do you want your kids and your grandkids and your family growing in the wisdom and knowledge and service of God? Would you rather they be sons of Belial? Total disregard for the things of God. Two very clear and distinct pictures. Conditions. But there's a reason for these conditions. If you look there at your next blank number two, there are two different types of leadership portrayed in this passage. These conditions, I believe, are are contingent upon the types of leadership that these men had in their family. The first type of leadership I want you to see is that of a passive father. A passive father. Look what it says in verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? This is Eli's feeble attempt, too late in the game, to warn Hophni and Phinehas. It's a weak warning. You know why it's a weak warning? Because Eli never says, stop it. He never, look at it, he never says that. He said, I hear what you're doing, it's not good. He was wringing his hands with concern, but he never told them to stop doing what they were doing. He was the high priest. He could have put things into place to, 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 to cause them to stop serving in that role. He could have intervened, he could have done something. But he's showing, displaying a, a passivity. Instead of intervening, Eli's ignoring the situation. You say, wait, well, that's reading too much into that text. Well, look what God says about Eli's uh, role as father. Look what it says in verse 27. A man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose from uh, them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I've commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choice of every offering of my people Israel? Here's what he's saying. God said, I've been good to you. He sends a prophet to speak to Eli. I've been good to you. I've been good to Israel. I've allowed you to serve in the role of, of the priesthood. And yet you disregard me. And look how he describes it in verse 29. He says, you honor your sons above me. Everybody look at me for a moment. This is very important. Eli 
would have rather displeased God than displeased his sons. So he displays a shocking passivity. He never intervenes and says, stop it. He never takes action. And look what it says in chapter 3, verse 11. We'll study this passage next week. But look what God says about Eli in this passage. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew. Watch this. Because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Passivity. His sons were doing wicked things. And Eli never says, don't do that. So the first picture of spiritual leadership we see is that of a passive father. And can I tell you that this? Passivity in parenting, passivity in fatherhood is still an epidemic today. It's an epidemic. We have fathers that are wringing their hands with concern. But they never take action. And they never speak truth into their kids' lives. They would rather displease God than have an uncomfortable conversation with their son or daughter. And it is reaping terrible dividends in our society. Where fathers are just passive in their roles. It takes courage to be a, 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 an active father. It, it takes courage to step in and say the right thing. It takes courage to rebuke and to, and to warn and to, and to help children go in a new direction. A passive father leads to unchecked wickedness. That's what we see in this passage. But not only do we see a passive father, we see a great contrast to the passive father. We see a God-fearing family. It seems that Samuel's family fears the Lord. Look back in chapter 2, verse 18 with me. It says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So, wait, what did Samuel have going for him? Well, first of all, he had a father that made worship a priority. A father that made worship a priority. Verse 19 says they would come up for the yearly sacrifice. You read chapter 1, we see them coming every year to offer a sacrifice to God, to come as a family and worship the God. You know, Shiloh was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the Tent of Meeting was, and they would come there once a year. Elkanah saw to it that his family was there once a year to worship at the Ark of the Covenant. The father made worship a priority. And I believe Samuel was greatly influenced by that. That whatever happened in their family, whatever season of life they were in, they knew there was a time of year they were going to worship the God and take their sacrifice before the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant. They would journey from Ramath Gilead, they would journey to Shiloh to worship. Now can I tell you this? You can greatly influence your kids and your kids' kids if you will make worship a priority. You see, 
your diligence to come and worship God says a lot about what you believe about God. You see, either God is worthy of worship or He's not. And when worship is not a priority in your home, you're communicating to your family, God is not worthy of worship. You say, I never say that, but you're saying that when you don't make worship a priority. Samuel had the blessing of a father that made sure his family worshipped. How about your family? Is worship a priority in your family? Or do you give God what's left over? If, if everything else gets accomplished in your family, and you, get, you, you do everything else, then you have some time left over and some energy left over, then you'll go worship. Or is worship a part of the fabric of your family's life where everything centers around Jesus? It's God's grace in my life that I grew up in a home where my dad took the role of making sure we were in worship. Sunday mornings, not a question where we would be. We knew we would be in church. Dad would come wake us up. There was a time he poured water on me to get me out of bed. I mean, he was serious. And, and, and he made sure we were in worship. It was a non-negotiable. We didn't discuss it. Oh, I'm tired. No, it, we went to worship Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. How about you? Can I tell you one of the disturbing trends in American Christianity? We're seeing less and less people that can put three or four weeks together coming to church. It's a week here and then two weeks off and then maybe two weeks on and then miss a week and then come a week and then... Listen to me. I'm not being ugly, but what's that communicating to your kids? When they're no longer in your home and they're making their own decisions, you know what they're going to do? They're going to practice worship just like you did. And so... Samuel had a father that made worship a priority. Secondly, Samuel had a praying mother. He had a praying mother. Verse 20, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she de dedicated to the Lord. And they went to their own home. The Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. What's happening here? Eli remembers Hannah. If you remember chapter 1, Hannah was an, unable to have children and she would go to the, to the temple and she'd pour out her heart before the Lord asking God for, for a child. She said, if you give me a child, I'll make him a Nazarite. And Eli, so impressed by her prayer, says, may the Lord give you what you're asking for. She has a, a son named Samuel. She brings him to the temple, says, I'm dedicating him to the Lord. I'm going to leave him here with you. And Eli's impressed. He remembered Hannah's prayers. He remembered she was a woman of prayers and may the Lord replace Samuel with some more children. And, and God gives her some more children. You see, Hannah was a praying mother. Just study chapter 1 and see how many times it mentions the prayers of Hannah. Look in chapter 2. The chapter begins with a, with a great prayer of praise and thanksgiving. She was a woman of prayer. And I believe that marked Samuel's life deeply. Deeply. I can't study Hannah without thinking about Susanna Wesley. Remarkable woman, had 19 children. Not all of those lived to adulthood, but she had a lot of children, a, 
a, a busy household, and on each of her children's birthdays, she would pray for them all day long. And, and she would try to find time to pray. You know, would, you can imagine with that many children, there, it'd be hard to find a quiet place. And so what she would do is, when she needed to pray and have some time with the Lord, she would take her apron and she'd put it over her head and pray. And her kids knew, when the apron's over mom's head, don't mess with her, she's praying. I don't think it's any coincidence that her son John Wesley and her son Charles Wesley were used by God to see thousands of people saved. Used by God to send a great awakening and revival. She was a woman of prayer. Now listen to me, ladies. Do you think that others look at your life and will characterize your life as a life of prayer? When people talk about you, would that be the first thing that comes to their mind? My mom or my grandmother is a, is a lady who prays. Is prayer such a part of who you are that people see it and know that about you? Samuel had a praying mother. And oh, what power. What power is to be found when we pray, when we lay we bring our kids and lay them before the throne of grace. Samuel had a father that made worship a priority. He had a mother that prayed, but third, he had support. He knew his family loved him and was there for him. Look what it says in verse 19. His mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him year after year when she would come up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And so every year... Samuel's mom goes and makes a robe that's a little bit bigger because Samuel's growing. And every year she comes to worship, she gives Samuel the bigger robe. I, I, the Bible doesn't say this, but she's using my sanctified imagination. I can just imagine Hannah sewing this robe, praying over Samuel's life. Can you imagine that? I bet she did. And, and, and Samuel knew that, 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 that his family was going to come. He knew mom was going to have a new robe for him. He knew his family supported him. They had left him there to, to serve the Lord, dedicated him to serve the Lord, but he knew his family supported him and cared about him. It is so vital, as we think about our, our children's spiritual conditions, it is so vital that our kids know we care about them. And, and let me just tell you this. Passivity communicates, I don't really care about you. That's what it communicates. You say, I would never say that. I don't feel that way. Yes, but when you are passive and you don't, and you don't, and you don't intervene and talk to your kids and speak truth in their life, you're communicating, I don't care. Do what you want to do. I don't care. We live in a day where people say, well, you know, teenagers are just going to be teenagers. They're just, just going to do their stuff. Listen to me, that, that's not acceptable to me. We have, as believers in Christ, the Spirit of God living on the inside of us. Amen? We have the Word of God to guide us. We have the church of God around us. Maybe, just maybe, through the power and grace of God, we can call our kids and support our kids to live pure and holy lives. If it were not possible to be holy, God would not command us to be holy. It's time we said, yes, we care deeply about your spiritual condition. We care deeply about your purity. We care deeply about your walk with God. 
And, and we're going to talk to you, even if it's uncomfortable. And we're going to speak truth into your life. And we're going to love you, and you're going to know whatever comes, whatever decisions you make as you become an adult, you're going to know your family was there for you, spiritually speaking. So, we see these two different types of leadership. Eli, the passive father that would rather offend God than have an uncomfortable conversation with his sons. And we see over here a God-fearing family. Worship, prayer, support. Which of those do you want to live out? There's one third truth I want you to see. There's two different spiritual conditions contrasted in this passage, two different types of leadership. And then third, there's two different outcomes. The first is a legacy of shame. A legacy of shame. In verse 30, we've seen that God has sent a prophet, an unnamed prophet, to speak truth to Eli. Look what he says in verse 30. Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve. And all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be a sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. And I will build him an enduring house. He will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. And say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. God is speaking judgment into Eli's life. He's speaking of a legacy of shame that Eli would leave behind. He says in verse 31 that that he was going to cut short his strength. Now the practical outworking of this judgment is twofold. First of all, we see the current generations of Eli's family would suffer judgment. Verse 34 it says, Hophni and Phinehas would die on the same day. In a couple chapters we'll see that's precisely what happens. Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day as a sign that God was judging the house of Eli. But not only did this judgment deal with Eli's immediate family, future generations of Eli's family would suffer consequences as well. He tells Eli here, he says, listen, you're not going to have any men grow to old age. They're not going to reach that, that status of an elder in society. Your, your family will never get that respect of having a bunch of wise elders. They're not going to grow that old, is what he's saying there. And he said, you're not going to serve as priests anymore. He said, I'm going to raise up a new priest who's faithful and, and his line will take over the priesthood, and your line will be put on the shelf. They say, when was this fulfilled? Because look what it says there uh, in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. This was fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 2, when, when God raises up Zadok to take over the priesthood and displaced Abiathar, who was a descendant of Eli. So Zadok and his descendants took over the priesthood. Eli's family was, again, put on the shelf. 
And he says at the end of this chapter 2 that the things would be so dire that Eli's family would not even be able to get payment for their services. In other words, let me say it like this. God was through with Eli and his family. Now that phrase ought to send chill bumps up your spine. That if you play games with God, and you disrespect Him, and you cross that line, whatever that line is, in the sovereign heart of God, there's a precedent that God will remove His hand from you and your family. And He'll be through using you and your family. That is terrifying. And that's what He says to Eli. Eli's legacy was a legacy of shame. But in contrast, there's a legacy of godliness. Look in verse 30 of chapter 2. This is a very important verse. Make sure you mark it up and underline it and highlight it so you can come back and study it later. Verse 30 says, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. We're going to see as God takes away the priesthood from Eli, that he gives the, the reins of spiritual leadership to Samuel. Why? Because of the spiritual principle. Those that honor God will be honored by God. Do you hear me? Those that honor God will be honored by God. If you want to be honored by God, honor God as a family. That's why Samuel was lifted up and used by God, because he and his family honored the Lord. You honor him, he will honor you. God was preparing Samuel to lead a nation out of spiritual darkness. He was going to use Samuel in great and mighty ways. Everybody look at me. Parents, grandparents, look at me for a moment. Don't you want your kids to be used by God? Don't you want your kids to be used by God? Honor the Lord. And he'll honor you and honor your household. Now, the, the contrast between these two different legacies, a legacy of shame and a legacy of godliness, is found as we work our way through 1 Samuel. We'll see this in a few weeks, but we see that Hophni and Phinehas led the Israelites into battle as the priests, and they had the Ark of the Covenant with them as a sign of, of, of God's favor. They thought if they had the Ark of the Covenant, God would give them a victory over the Philistines, but of course they were living in, in wickedness, and so God allows the Philistines to defeat the Israelites. And in battle, Hophni and Phinehas die on the same day, just like God said they would, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. One Israelite flees from the battle, and he comes to Eli, the aged high priest. He says, Eli, both your sons are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. Eli is so shocked by this news, he falls over backwards and dies. Phineas' wife was with child. And she shows, she's so shocked by the news that she goes into labor. And the labor is a difficult labor. And right before she dies, the baby's born. And right before she dies, she names the baby. You know what she names this baby? She names him Ichabod. You know what the word Ichabod means? It means the glory of the Lord has departed. She said, I'm going to name him Ichabod because God has taken his hand off of us. God's glory is gone. 
But then we see Samuel take over the reins of leadership. He gets his people back on, uh, on the right page. He's teaching them to obey the Lord and to serve the Lord and to seek the Lord. And they go into battle with the Philistines, led by Samuel as their spiritual leader. God gives them a great victory. They recapture the ark. And after the victory, Samuel gets a big stone and says, This stone is called Ebenezer, which means the Lord is our help. Now let me ask you what you want for your kids. Do you want Ichabod, a legacy of shame? Or do you want Ebenezer, the Lord is our help, a, a legacy of godliness? That's the contrast we see in these verses. Now I want to close with these words from Dale Ralph Davis because even as I speak these words, I know that it may seem hopeless and dark for some families in here. Maybe you're going through some things or your kids are going through some things or your grandkids are going through some things and, and it just really seems hopeless. Let me read you this quote. These brief notes on Samuel are noteworthy. Chapter 2. They tell us that Yahweh is already at work providing for new godly leadership for his people. There are no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. It is all very quiet. Growth seldom makes noise, and Yahweh is growing his new leader. Eli's sons dominated the picture. All Israel suffered under the arrogant, cynical, immoral priesthood. Clergy who savored the prime cuts over teaching godliness. Who much preferred immorality than interceding for Yahweh's flock. It must have seemed, listen, to many like there was no hope of improvement, no exit from the night. But in the middle of it all, the text keeps whispering, don't forget Samuel. You see how Samuel is serving. That is Yahweh's manner, quietly providing for the next moment, even in the middle of the darkest moments. You say, Wade, my family seems hopeless. My family is living in great spiritual darkness. Can I, can I just give you some hope this morning? In chapter 2, God says, I'm going to raise up a new leader, a new priesthood. I'm going to intervene in the affairs of my people. Say, wait, why was God doing that? Why did God care so much about the Israelites? Listen to me. Because one day, God was going to send the prophet and the high priest named Jesus. And Jesus was going to come to this earth and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead. So God was preserving Israel because he was going to send the Messiah through Israel. Jesus came to die for our sins and save us and transform us. So listen to me. Because of Jesus, there's always hope. There's always hope. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Even though God's people were living in darkness, God was getting ready to do something marvelous. And even though you may be living in great darkness as a family, through Jesus, God can do something marvelous. If you let Jesus get in the middle of your family, and have his way.